0: On the other side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. It has since been taken offline by Open Stories, but you can now find an archive of all 15 episodes on chrisway.com slash otos, or on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. On the other side was a podcast project dedicated to discussing religious, post-religious, and religion-adjacent issues from a distinctly millennial perspective.
1: Welcome, everybody, to On the Other Side, Millennials and Religion. This is Blake Wright, and this is my first guest interview with the one and only Bryce Blankenagel. He is the host of the Naked Mormonism podcast, and I am a huge fan of Naked Mormonism. It is a chronological history of everything Mormonism. We started at uh, Joseph Smith in the early days, and we're just chronicling every single instance that we can find documented history on and going through it. And it is so fascinating and so fun. And every now and again, we talk uh, current events, stuff that's going on now. But typically, it's uh, the history and it's super in depth and fascinating. So um, that's Bryce.
2: And go ahead and say hello, Bryce. Hello. Thank you very much, Blake. And conveniently, I'm sitting on the other side of the room from you. We've welcomed Bryce on the One. other side. <laughs> All right. Um, no, seriously, though, thank you for having me. Um, I, I met you a little while back, I believe, during the March for the Children. And I was able to, you know, put a, a name or put a face to the name that I've seen on social media. So it's really a pleasure to sit, you know, on the other side of a mic from you.
1: On the other side of the mic. And for those of our listeners that don't know, maybe,
2: um, Bryce, do we want tell them what the uh, March for the Children was? Yeah, the March for the Children was in March. It was prior to the, uh, it was March 30th, March, March. Uh, it was prior to the April conference. Uh, For the Protect LDS Children campaign organized by Sam Young et al. Because there was a lot of people that went into this. You know, Sam Young is just the figurehead of the Protect LDS Children movement. But it was this public march to shut down downtown Salt Lake City. Start at, I believe, Liberty Park. And march the, you know, uh, half mile up to the church headquarters. A church office building. And deliver to them the sacred stories from the sacred children which are stories of uh, covert and overt sexual abuse that have happened in the church. And each of the apostles was given their own booklet and the church sent down representatives to meet with us. And it was a very interesting experience um, mingling and meeting a lot of people, all of us who have the shared heritage of Mormonism and uh, getting their stories and learning what they have dealt with and hearing similar tales, but said in a unique way. And realizing the absolute dire need for the Protect Elias Children campaign and movement to succeed in its goals, and that is no more sexually explicit interviews, no more one-on-one behind-closed-doors interviews. And those, those aspects of the bishop's worthiness interviews are intensely problematic and they open the door for a lot of sexual abuse, sexual shaming that happens. And the Protect LDS Children campaign was organized to fight that. And it still continues to fight because the church has not changed its policy. And until they change, I have it on good authority that Sam Young's not going to be given up. Yeah, and you all you the, interviewed him recently, right? Yeah, I did. And um, all of the thousand, tens of thousands of people who have signed the petitions to calling on the church to change – They're not going to stop either until this has changed. This is uh, an issue that's in the public lexicon, particularly in the social media post-Mormon, ex-Mormon groups where we're talking about it still and it has just as much fire behind it as it did back in March. And, you know, it's, it's just something that needs to change. And it feels like it's one way to drag the church kicking and screaming into the 21st century.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to note that not, not everybody that's marching is marching to fight against the church. But like you said, no, just fight against the sexually explicit questions and one-on-one interviews. Um, my brother-in-law and his family came to the march, and he got disciplined at work for taking that time off because wow. his his boss's LDS and he found out that he was down there. And I think it's really important to note that none of us are, well, not none of us, but most of us aren't there to try to fight the church. Just say, Hey, maybe don't ask children where they touch themselves
2: one-on-one or at all. Yeah, exactly. And create, and more than that, it creates the culture of shaming sexuality and sexual desires That that just needs to stop. Yeah, and instilling it at a super young age too. Yeah, and it's something that is indoctrinated in us to be very normalized from a young age. And it creates a stigma around our own sexual drives, whoever or for whatever identity they express themselves and whatever we find attractive, whoever we do find attractive or don't find attractive. Uh, The stigma is created and the indoctrination is started at a very young age and that it is at the very foundation of it it is just a controlling mechanism and i think millennials more and more realize that that is unacceptable that we are being controlled through our sexuality that that is something that's very personal if we believe in god that's something between me and my god we don't need the church to be an emissary between us and determine what is right and wrong or if you're like me who doesn't believe in god then I'm looking out for the people who still believe in the church in campaigning to cause the church to change its policies. It's not to fight against the church. It's to help the church become more modern. Yeah. And cognizant of some of the damage they might be doing to
1: children. Um, I don't want to get too deep into this, but I, uh, cause you haven't even introduced yourself and told us anything about you yet, really. But I do want to ask you what you would say to somebody who said, well, I have so much faith and trust in the hierarchy of the church and the bishop that's a steward over my ward. And I believe that he is called of God to, to discern some of the things that I'm talking to him about, including the law of chastity and my garments and that kind of thing. What would you say to somebody who looked at
2: it through that lens? Well, that's, I. that can be easily done away with, with the, the central focus of the protect LDS children campaign. of bishops are the best people you'll ever meet, right? And I I sincerely believe that the vast majority of bishops are there doing the right thing. They are good-hearted people and they are there looking out for the best needs of their parishioners. Now, where we need to take issue is not with the individual bishops, it's with the systematic problems. Because you, in much the way that a person can personally not be racist, but still be part of a racist system and therefore perpetuating racist ideas and stereotypes and everything, the same thing happens with bishops. They are part of a systematic uh, organization that shames us about our sexuality. They are doing what they are told. They are perpetuating the church that they grew up in and what they know and what they're comfortable with and I can't fault them for doing that. I put I I put the fault on the system not within the individuals within the system. And until we can separate those two, it's always going to be seen as an anti-Mormon crusade to stop bishops from interviewing kids whereas what the way that needs it needs to be framed is the church as an organization the church as a system as an entity itself not the individuals within it are where the problems lie and we can change the organization without blaming individuals within the system because these are cultural norms that have been in place since the mormon reformation since the 18 you know mid to late 1850s and we can't lay blame on any one person. We can't even lay blame on the quorum of the apostles. We need to lay blame on the system itself. And I think that's a more healthy way of trying to reform the modern church to become a 21st century modern church in every issue. Because it's not just protect LDS children and these these. Uh, abusive sexually explicit interviews. It's also historical issues that the church has moved on quite a lot in just the past decade and a half. It's also the church's stances on homosexuality and uh, non gender binary people and, and the entire LGBTQ plus community, the way that the church uh, tries to speak out of one side and create support groups like Affirmation and, and Fund Affirmation and, and, you know, mormonandgay.org and all of these these things, but they still have policies in place that are the problem. Take issue with the organization and the policies, not necessarily with the people who are creating those. I am so enveloped with the spirit right now. If
1: you guys are anything like me, go to Bryce's podcast because he talks like that all the time. And it is so wonderful to hear his insights on everything. I think we could probably spend an hour on affirmation, an hour on mormonsandgays.com. Um, but we better dive into some of the meat of this
2: yeah, That's not my specialty. I'm not comfortable with it.
1: Everything that <laughs> thought provoking is your specialty. Don't, don't lead us astray. Okay. Um, so... Honestly, for my own personal curiosity and, uh, for everybody else listening, I really want to know a lot about you. Like, um, I've heard a little bit that you grew up in, in the church and at an early age, you kind of transitioned away. Um, but I want to hear kind of like your story. Like, where were you when you were in the church, how you transitioned, where you're at now, that kind of thing. Born in the
2: covenant. I was born in the covenant. Yep, Uh, BIC here in uh, Utah, just North of Salt Lake city. And, um. Yeah, I, I was one of the people who never really liked going to church. And I know that the people who love going to church, you know, there's it's split. It's a division. People who love going to church, people who convince themselves that they love going to church because that's the righteous thing to do and the righteous type of person to be. And then people who are like me who don't like to go to church but do enjoy partaking in just a few of the activities. Maybe you know? there's like value in the sacrifice of the distaste of church. something (laughs) like that. Um, so yeah, I mean like youth activities, service activities. I enjoyed, you know, scouting. I I got my Eagle scout and I was happy to get it. Yeah. Right. Eagles for life. That's right. Um, so there, there are certain aspects of the church in the, uh, the community itself that I enjoyed about going to church, but I became very apathetic about the church. And this is a term that's not typically used within the, realm of Mormonism and post-Mormonism, but I was apatheist where, um, I wasn't a, th- you know, a theo- theological person. I didn't, I didn't have a much of a belief in theology. I was an atheist. I was just, um, apathetic about it. It was a question that I never asked, you know, do I believe in, in God? Do I believe in the church? Do I believe that it's, um, you know, true? Because I didn't know what true meant at the age of 16, you don't know anything about the world at 16. You just don't. And that was about the time that I decided I, I, I'm done attending church because I'm not getting anything out of it. And I feel like um, the only thing that is, uh, the only thing resulting from my, current, my continued attendance at church is just slipping further into depression and anxiety. And that was not healthy. That was a very damaging time of my life to, to be continuing to go to church. So I stopped attending. And I, I went to a year of college after I graduated high school and realized that, that um, higher education at that time in my life was not for me. So I went into the workforce and I did something that was the most healthy thing for me mentally to do, and that was moved out of my parents' basement. <laughs> and and it was not only healthy for me, it was healthy for the relationship with my parents too. Um, we've never been closer than when I... Than when you left. When I left, yeah. We we are so much closer now that I have left. Distance makes the say. heart grow fonder. It, it, you know, some of those pithy lines, they do hold a nugget of truth to them. Yeah. And that's that's one of them that I find, um, The the further I move away from my parents, the more that I appreciate the very few moments that I do get with them. And you know, moving out of their, their basement did teach me to be an adult. It taught me, you know, I know a lot of, um, a lot of members when they, their first foray into the real world is as a missionary where you go live away from your parents, but you're still living under a totalitarian system that controls your schedule. It controls your reading material, all of the information in and out of your life controls your contact with other people. And, um, it completely stifles growth while at the same time, uh, forcing you to grow into adulthood in the way of like dealing with bills and going grocery shopping and doing chores around the house, right? Um, I didn't do that. I didn't go on my mission. I didn't take out my endowments. I, I never did a lot of, you know, I didn't check a lot of the boxes that that most Mormons do as they grow up because I left at 16. Uh, but my ability to move out of my parents' basement and live on my own and work for a living and and make mistakes and learn who I was it caused me to be much more introspective and question, what is it? You know, what do I believe? Is the church really a good institution? And those questions just kind of resided in the back of my mind. And then I, I ended up moving to Colorado because the reason I gave was I wanted to get out of Utah. I had family in Colorado I could live with for a little while until I could establish myself, get a job, get a, you know, a place to live and everything. So I got out to Colorado and that's where I was finally transplanted into a completely different culture. I mean, they're still the same people, right? But it wasn't Mormon. It wasn't Morador, right? (laughs) It wasn't this grand Mormon corridor that we have going through Idaho, Utah, and Arizona. uh, It was something that was completely different. Found people that were completely content living their lives without an umbrella of religion or theocracy over their heads. And it was the most stunning thing to be driving along and find myself in a mentality that I said, oh... There's, there's a, a Mormon church right there. I haven't seen one of those in months. I know what those people do. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to where here, you know, you drive through the Salt Lake Valley, you cannot go two miles without seeing a church steeple, right? Yeah,
1: sometimes you see one that's like white brick instead of red or, you know, the standard colors. And you're like, hey, <laughs> look at that.
2: Oh, that's unique. Yeah. Yay. Um, so that exposed me to an entire culture and set of people that thought differently than me. And thought, you know, and I was living on the eastern slope in farm country, so they thought similarly to a lot of, of Utahans in in you know politics and in uh current events and stuff like that, but they thought differently on the religious sphere. And I found so many of those people out there are educated by their pastors to know how much Mormonism is a cult without ever being introspective of their religion themselves, might be cultish as well. And you start interacting with people and they learn that you were Mormon, are Mormon, whatever. And they start telling you things that cause you to say, oh, whoa, hang on. Whoa, I'm not comfortable with that. Wait, Joseph Smith was charged in 1826 for being a glass looker. Hang on. Well, no, that's anti-Mormon lies, right? So instantly you get this defensive wall up. And not as a member, not believing explicitly in the church, just having those questions in the back of my mind when people would approach me. And say, you know, I, I had a, a very good friend that I was helping renovating a house with at the time. Um, he would approach me and uh, with these controversial issues within church history that I didn't have answers for because I didn't know about. And even not as a believer, I found myself putting up the defensive walls because it was, I was defending my culture. Those felt like affronts to who I was because I still hadn't, I, I still hadn't separated myself from my belief. So he told me to look into a few resources, read a couple of books, and then come back and we'll have a conversation. And where the crux of our argument stuck was Mormonism isn't Christian. And thats a, I know that's a common argument between Mormons and other Christians. If Mormons claim they are Christian and Jesus Christ is in the name, then they get to wear the badge of Christian, just as much as Westboro Baptists do, just as much as Jehovah's Witnesses do. They all wear the badge of Christian. They, they're all under the umbrella. So the issue is settled in my mind. But when a Christian was saying that Mormonism isn't Christianity, that was, that was a problem. I took issue with it. So then I consumed those historical resources and my mind shifted. And that is when my, um, when we talk in the church about getting the genealogy bug, you get bit by the genealogy bug and you just can't get enough of it. That was the time when I got bit by the history bug and I didn't realize it for months until I was so deep in the rabbit hole of Mormon history that I was just staring up at the ceiling trying to find what had led me down this rabbit hole and not being able to know which way is up. Not being able to know what sources I can trust. Not knowing what is verifiable and what we consider verifiable and what is propaganda from one side or the other. And that began an earnest and honest endeavor to try and understand the most realistic narrative of church history that I possibly could. And then, after a couple of years of that, I said, um, after I started learning enough about Mormon history, that's when I w- was listening to atheist and skeptic podcasts, you know, Scathing Atheist and Cognitive Dissonance, and, you know, these, these people I call friends now. Um, Huge they, podcast that you've been guests on now. Yes, yes, and and attended a number of conventions and conferences together, and and that was the community that I needed because I didn't realize at the time, but I was a drifter without a community, and as I was transitioning and learning all of these things, transitioning my belief unwillingly from the church is false to the church has a lot of issues that need to be addressed. And the church, uh, that these issues, um, they need to enter the public sphere. The, these issues need to be a central focus of conversation. When I would hear people come on other podcasts, other atheist and skeptical podcasts, and talk about Mormon history that I knew, I obviously knew more about than they did because they were just referencing things, prefer- you know, uh, just obliquely, whereas I knew the, the history of it, at least I thought I did. I would hear them say something and I would just scream at the windshields because I was driving a truck at the time. I would scream at my windshield, no, you got it wrong. And that's when I said there needs to be a resource where somebody can pick up from episode one and um, just understand the birth of Joseph Smith and progress from there. Get it all documented chronologically the way that people understand a story you tell a story from the beginning you don't pick up somewhere in the middle and just immediately start talking about the school of the elders you don't just start talking about that you don't just start talking about the kirtland temple dedication ceremony you wrap it up you start you drop your pin at joseph smith and had i Start it now, I would have dropped my pin at the Enlightenment era uh, to, to create the culture and, and context of history of post Enlightenment, um, you know, industrial, early industrialized, uh, industrialized 19th century America, because it's fascinating. You can't understand Joseph Smith unless you have that context. But that's where I chose to drop the pin. And that's where I, I, I looked and looked and looked for a podcast that went through the serial history of Mormonism, and it didn't exist. So I decided to create the podcast that I wanted. And that started naked Mormonism, and that started me down this path of diving so deep into the history of Joseph Smith and Mormonism that um, I I I can't get enough of it now. It is an entire path of righteousness to join the path that rocks. (laughs) Well, that's it's an interesting way to say that. It's from Emperor's New Groove hashtag Disney, so. Apparently I'm not a a bona fide millennial if I don't get an Emperor's New Groove reference. It's okay. I'll educate you on Disney references and you educate me on everything Mormon. Okay. (laughs) Deal. Deal. Dinner tomorrow. Let's do it. Um, (laughs) So needless to say – when I first started, I, I jumped into all of the salacious aspects that, that CES letter had covered the letter for my wife is now covering and, and all of these, um, you know, these main historiographies that, that now Mormon millennials seem to know a lot more about than the generation prior. Why do you think that is the ubiquity of information? I I've noticed that, um, there's still a veil of,
1: I don't want to call it ignorance. Cause I don't want to say that the, standard Mormon who says like Bryce Blankenagel says that the church needs to change and the prophet hasn't said anything on the matter. So I'm going to listen to this, you know, I don't want to just blanket them in ignorance, but there does seem to be almost a fear. Like, um, uh, there's, there's the information a mouse click away where any generation previous it was hidden and obscured and you had to go through scary resources to find it now it's right there in front of them and they still feel tentative uh fear Mm -hmm. to address that and i'm always fascinated to talk to people like that and say what what is where's that fear founded in what do you think
2: it's anti mormonism -Mormonism. anti-mormonism it's a suppressive person it's apostates it's atheists it's the, the thing is, is, it's the otherizing of information. It's the personification of our greatest fears. When you're part of a culture and they're able to label, put a simplistic label on something that challenges the narrative of that organization, that's it's mind control. It, at the very foundation, that is mind control. If you can convince a person that anything that comes out of another person's mouth is anti-Mormon is a suppressive person everything that's coming out is not even worth dealing with it's not even worth listening to you've got that person
1: yeah you've got
2: them in your clutches and it's kind of seems like a
1: power that no uh organization and institution should wield on a person or mind shouldn't
2: but that is it's it's effective (laughs) and isn't it It, it's extremely effective an institution that has um and it's not illegal it's just unethical it's
1: immoral it's, it's it's not de- deplorable. <laughs> deplorable. Um, there's there's a f- one of my favorite quotes by J. Reuben Clark. He says, "If if we have the truth, it can't be harmed. But if we don't have the truth, it should be harmed." Yes. And that's a famous general authority, and he says something like that. But we still find fear in addressing these anti claims. And um, one one quote that's not Mormon, but is f- fun for me to to cite is. Aristotle, He said it's the mark of an intelligent man to embrace an idea without accepting it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's why a lot of us are fascinated by some of the stuff that uh, – like the CES letter points out. Like what? Why, why is this information been hidden from me for so long? Or maybe some why, might say why? it wasn't hidden. You just
2: didn't find it. You just didn't know where to look. You just didn't know where to look. <laughs> that, is, that is quite a uh... – That is a knife edge to dance, isn't it? Because at what point is the threshold crossed of, well, we may not have pointed out this information, but we weren't hiding it. When does it become hiding it? At what point are you selling a false narrative when in every single chapel still there's a portrait of Joseph Smith reading the gold plates when we know that's not what happened? (laughs) That is dishonest, that is lying. That is hiding information that might otherwise challenge a person's beliefs. That is propaganda. That is unacceptable. That is unethical. It's not illegal. An organization, a single organization, should not wield that power, I agree. And we have this incredible force that has never been accessed before with the democratization and ubiquity of information out there because see uh, what Jeremy Reynolds did and what letter from my wife did and what all of these outlets do that now are the millennial go-to source for problematic history within the church is they accessed information that took scholars and historians over a century to compile within a few hours. Yeah. And for those that aren't aware, just really quick, that the CES
1: letter refers to um, an educator employed by the church named Jeremy Reynolds. He He had some tough questions posed by his students, so he started jotting them down and asked his superiors. And long story short, he never got the answers that were—never got answers, period. And so he just kept compiling questions until now there's a published book on it. And um, it's a great resource for anybody to just go and see what some of the
2: larger concerns are that a lot of us um, post-Mormons have. Yeah, And a little clarification So Jeremy was not part of the CES Um, Initially what the CES letter started Was a letter to a CES director So Jeremy started researching problematic issues Within the church And he was put in touch with a CES director The church educational system Somebody who should have answers to these questions And that's when he compiled everything Into this letter to the CES director And sent it to uh, the unnamed The redacted named CES director And that is it's become the standard bearer that people say, uh, what broke your shelf? CES letter. Uh, What broke your shelf? Book of Abraham. Well, that's included in the CES letter. What broke your shelf? Polygamy. That's in the CES letter. All of those problematic issues are included in the CES letter. And because the internet exists, Jeremy was able to compile all of this information into one small, very concise resource that everybody can consume within a few hours. You can read it pretty quickly. It's 120 pages or something. And you know the history that the church doesn't want you to know. So the ubiquity of information with the Internet is, well, needless to say, it's been fun to watch the dance that mm-hmm. has happened, the the constant uh, jabs and parrying that has happened with um with church propaganda outlets and with quote unquote anti-Mormon propaganda outlets. Yeah. And to watch the real historians debating at the core of these issues, what they're saying about the controversial issues, because the, when I started naked Mormonism, that's where I started was with all of these salacious aspects with the differing first vision accounts with, uh, the translation method of the book of Mormon, the, the, the podcast has evolved so far beyond those issues now because I'm mired in the granularity of Joseph Smith's history and there is so much there to unpack. I'm in the Nauvoo era right now. and When we're recording this in July of 2018, I'm currently sitting in May of 1842, which is a woefully complex time in Mormon history. And there is no historian alive today... That I know who would claim that they fully understand Nauvoo Mormonism because it's that complex, but it doesn't have the salacious aspects, right? It doesn't have the different First Vision accounts. It does have the Kinderhook plates. You know that's fun. It has the Book of Abraham. Those are fun, but everything, all of the historical context around those, is what's truly important. That's how you understand those issues within the context of their time, and you understand the mentality of Joseph Smith. When he was creating and, and fabricating these pieces of Mormon doctrine as a practice today,
1: I, I hate to backtrack, but I had a thought just now about how I gave a narrative about a church educator uh, writing a letter to CS director, and we had a little clarification. And I think that's the crux of his whole podcast, you guys. Is we heard a narrative of a guy that saw God and translated a book and started a religion, and he says, mm, "Let's clarify that just a little bit." <laughs> yeah. and now we're what yes. one hundred and ten episodes in, and still about. 12 years after the founding of the religion and yeah i just finished your high priestess's uh oh yeah part so women in the priesthood that's a fascinating episode i want to say it's 108 if you guys are interested
2: mm-hmm. um and one thing that i have fallen short of so frequently and i'm still trying to figure out how to to work with this because it's a challenge um and, and it requires a lot of work on my part is incorporating the female aspect within the church because the church is, it was founded and created by white men for white men. And the history was recounted by white men and the female side of that, the not only was females role in 19th century America Far less than it was for men when it comes to signing contracts, when it came to owning property, voting, anything. All of those things women couldn't do. But when it comes to making decisions at the church leadership level, women are just wholly absent. Weird. We still see that shit today, right? Yeah. That is how the church was founded. And we need to be cognizant of the fact that the history itself was written by the men, about the men, for the men. And when we are examining the history of women's impact and their role within the church, we are forced to go to separate sources, to different sources, which is primarily their own journals. Because there's no revelation that's given to a woman except DNC 132 and the revelation commanding Emma to compile a hymnal for the church. Those are the only two Doctrine and Covenants revelations that mention women, and one of them is about, Joseph can have as many wives as he wants, but Emma, you cleave to none else other than me. And this is...
1: Thanks to your podcast that I know this. Uh, this is during a period where Joseph had told Emma that maybe he'd compromise and let her marry uh, William Law's wife. Uh, Who
2: knows? It's, it's so the, – the history is really finicky because not only are we talking about things that were likely never written down, but we're talking about conversations that were had behind closed doors by people that were notoriously secretive, at a time when they kept any documentation that was written down extremely secretive, and all of that documentation that may exist out there proving that something like that was the case is largely controlled by the church. So we have to be very careful when we're trying to to posit plausibility. Yeah, it was were Emma and Hiram Smith uh, having uh, sexual relations with each other? There seems to be a possibility of evidence of that. And more than that, but having a, an emotional relationship that I think is where the real issue lies, because I think that the sex part of it is is a, an ancillary issue. It doesn't really matter that much. It's the emotional aspect of the relationships that all of the Mormons were cultivating with each other. And when you sit back and look at the amount of documentation and the women's role in all of this, Mormonism begins to look more and more like just a big free love society behind the closed doors but because of the constructs of protestant 19th century america adultery was illegal you know fornication outside of marriage was illegal people were castrated for sodomy in the in the 18th century these narratives these cultural norms we have to understand how many decisions were made by the church leadership surrounding polygamy because of the culture of sexual repression that they lived in within Victorian era, 19th century America. And we still aren't past that. America today is still a product of that. And that wraps up wonderfully into how we started this conversation and the way that the church views sexuality today and the sexual shaming. That's a vestige of an older time that we need to move past. And so much of this is complicated to to wrap this up, these multiple dots that are kind of floating around in this conversation to bring them into a cohesive point. It's very hard to create a comprehensive narrative of the church because there's so many pieces that are missing. And it's hard to include the female element within the church itself because if you're making a podcast about the church, the women had so little power and little decision-making skills or decision-making power that they're essentially written out of history. And the only way we know their impact and role in Mormon history is usually by their own hands. It's
1: difficult anyway to come up with cohesion when we're talking church history, but it wouldn't be much of a millennial podcast if we were that concise anyway. So we're (laughs) we're doing good. We're doing good. Touche. Touche. As far as women in the priesthood, I've I've had several, uh, or just women's roles in the church in general. I've had a couple conversations with girls that... um, they say things like, well, I don't need the priesthood. I have motherhood. And I think that's,
2: a, that's an idea perpetuated well, a lot by the church. We might be fading away from that. But what would yeah. you say to that? No, you're playing into the indoctrination that the church has taught you into. And I don't want to say you, you, you and, and demonize that mentality. But that mentality is a product of the indoctrination and the sexual repression and the gender roles that the church has created for us. The sooner you can get away from those the sooner you will realize that you're a human being and you are not reduced down to what genitals you have, right? Because if we can all move past whether we're boy and girl and what boys' roles and what girls' roles are in society, the sooner we can move past that, the sooner we can all grow up and be fucking adults in this culture.
1: Hear, here. You guys, check out his podcast. He's like this every single episode, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, well, so you've you've transitioned out of the church and you'd consider yourself atheist now. Yeah. Um, how would you define atheism? I, I always get people saying, well, it just means I haven't uh, found a definition of God I agree with yet, or it's I firmly believe there's no such thing as any superpower. Uh, so how would you define it?
2: Uh, or not? The, how would you no, just no, define I'm, where you're at now? I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a pithy way to, to couch this, but I am horrifically flatulent when it comes to any anything any point I'm trying to make so that's just not going to happen atheism is lack of belief in gods as a mormon mormons believe in one god humans have been writing down their history largely about gods for Four five thousand years that we have inscriptions on stone tablets, and Mormons don't believe in any of those gods. Mormons are atheists about millions and millions and millions of gods throughout all time in history, except for one. They're a ninety nine point nine 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 sigma percent atheist. They just can't cross that threshold and be one more percentage point atheist to be 100% atheist. I just made that step. Yeah. That's all I did. I just said, oh, so every single person has had their own version of God inside of their mind that they understand largely as a product of the culture and context in which they grew up. So that means that over human history, there have been billions and billions of conceptions of subjective conceptions of God's. I don't choose to believe in any of those gods. Why would I choose to believe in the God that my culture told me to believe in? And yeah, um, when you view, it, that's, that's actually helped a lot in my understanding of Mormon history. It's helped me to identify when I'm reading history from a, a, a church-employed historian uh, or from an apologist or something to that effect, it helps me identify the key words in their historical reporting and understand where they deviate from the facts in order to put a spin and an interpretation on that. Because no longer do I have to say, when, when I see a passage talking about um, Joseph Smith and the missionaries writing or going back to Kirtland and um, after they dedicate Zion in 1831, and uh, they are riding in their canoes and one of the canoes overturned. And Joseph gave a revelation that the destroyer rides upon the water. And then he basically took everybody's money, cobbled it together, put it in his pocket and hired a stagecoach to get him home and said, the rest of the guys, they can, they can go on a canoe. And now Um, missionaries can't go swimming. Yeah. Now missionaries can't go swimming. Right. So when we see that historical fact happening, we see that historical scenario taking place and then further postulation is made that, well, the reason why Joseph Smith believed that the the destroyer rides upon the water is because of this passage out of the Bible and this passage out of the Doctrine and Covenants. And therefore, you begin to get lost in a conversation of needless plausibility and causality. When we say Joseph Smith was a guy, he was riding in a canoe and it overturned, he almost drowned, and he got really scared, so that he tried to explain it in a way that made sense in his mind that he was attacked by a demon. And then he gave a revelation that said that the, the destroyer rides on the water, and lucky him, the, the guys there had just enough money to hire a stagecoach for him and a couple of his buddies to get home, while the rest of them continued on the waterway. When we see that history secularized, taken apart from the belief of how we're supposed to interpret that today, and now missionaries can't go swimming, if we can view that through a a skeptical lens and strip away, that's why it's naked Mormonism, we strip away these biases, it makes more sense.
1: And what what sort of things are we supposed to skepticize?
2: (laughs) Skepticize everything. Hashtag naked Mormonism. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. So, um, checked in the mail, by the way. Okay, thanks.
1: <laughs> um, why do you think that the history is so important to? So you you enjoy it because you grew up in it and you right. started realizing that maybe things weren't quite as sugar coated as they were presented to you. But why make a podcast about it? Why why present it to others and and educate people on the history that maybe, maybe some people might say, well, it's not that important because I felt the spirit and I just know the church is true. Why, why communicate your feelings
2: and thoughts on this topic? I see the church today and I want to know how it got to be what it is. I want to know how it came to wield so much power in Utah and without Knowing the history of Brigham Young, you can't understand how the church came to be today. Without knowing the history of Joseph Smith's ministry, you can't understand Brigham Young. In order to put into context the world we see around us, we are forced to look to the history. To see how the culture and the people and everything evolved to what it is today, it it forces us to look further back. And we can't understand Joseph Smith if we don't understand the mindset and the culture of the 19th century magician, um, juggler, mesmerist, whatever label, scryer, magic man, glass looker, whatever label you want to put on Joseph Smith. And he fits all of those extremely well as endlessly documented by D. Michael Quinn and many other powerful historians. If you don't understand the history of the church, you can't appreciate why it has so much power today, and you can't see it for what it truly is. And I'll use that to dovetail into a little screed about Brigham Young, because we're recording this, you know, one day after pie and beer day, right? Pie
1: and beer, or pioneer for uh, our active listeners.
2: Yes. I put up a Facebook post that summarized my thoughts fairly well, and it started with, I have blue Mormon pioneer blood coursing through my veins. Right. That's. I'm sure that's a line that you've heard a lot, especially at Pioneer Day festivals.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a Utah Ute alumnus, so uh, my blood runs
2: red. Go Utes! <clears throat> Continue. Sorry. Little before there was the blue red Crip blood factions in Utah it was the days of '47 when the Mormons landed. And Brigham Young at the head of the train, actually not at the head of the train. He was sick in the back of a wagon. He didn't, you know, plant his staff. It's, it doesn't matter, right? It's it's one of those historical factoids that are it just matters not that to entire. us because he's
1: he's you know kind of portrayed as being in the front, and he sent uh,
2: he was the Moses figure, right? Yeah, and He's and he, walking through with his beard and she, to blaze the trail. He sent a basically slaves. Through to Blaze Trail, right? Weird that you say that. We don't hear much about slavery in Utah, do we? Well, we don't. Yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, we also don't hear a whole lot about the native history in church. We don't, we don't talk much about the natives. When well, they we came about, across
1: a boat in the or 600 BC, right? And no, no, the, no, it was submarines of
2: 2600 BC. Oh, right, right. Excuse yeah. me. Sorry. See, that's why we time. have this guy here. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we don't, if we don't understand the history of the Mexico Territory of the Great Basin, when the Mormons landed here. We can't understand how atrocious and horrific it was living here under the autocratic dictatorial control of Brigham Young. And I am wholeheartedly convinced that The history of the Mountain Meadows Massacre isn't one of those, you know, milestone things that we put a lot of stock in and we talk about it just like we talk about the differing First vision accounts with Joseph Smith. It's the most salacious thing we think about. That's 120 men, women, and children slaughtered senselessly by the Mormons. There's no documentation to prove that Brigham Young ever commanded that. You know what there is a lot of documentation of? Brigham Young sending out his armed militia to exterminate destroy massacre native americans this state is built on the corpses of thousands of dead people and slave traded people and sex trafficking and every aspect that has been glorified in every 1950s western frontier flick everything that is truly disturbing and inhumane about that is how Mormonism was built in this desert. And now, when, when you understand a little bit about the history of Utah Mormonism, it really forces you to sit back and think about the fact that Utah has never been separated from that. Those are the bloody, disgusting roots of Utah Mormonism. And the church today does not wield the power that Brigham Young had. The church today is the evolution of the the theocracy that Brigham Young built. It is a modernized, streamlined, propaganda, PR-friendly version of a ruthless and bloody theocracy that Brigham Young created. And I'm well convinced that if more people truly understood the history of Brigham Young, That Mormons today, the PR department, would do everything they could to distance themselves from Brigham Young. The way that they've distanced themselves from Joseph Smith's magic history and tried to hide that. Um, Similar propaganda has been um, created in order to couch Brigham Young in a positive narrative. But Joseph Smith was a charismatic man. Brigham Young was just a by-the-numbers, iron-fisted autocrat. He was a horrific, disgusting human being. I can, I hope for the past five minutes of screening, people understand that no combination of words that I create could properly describe Brigham Young. And if Mormons today knew who he was, they wouldn't have four universities and a city named after him. They wouldn't have a number of streets throughout Utah named after him because he is horrific.
1: And uh, four universities, plus he founded the University of Utah, to our dismay.
2: That's, that's, that is true. Yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, to to bring it back to Pioneer Day, the we I cleared trees for power lines. We just cleared up by where he actually came over the pass because the monument is where he set up camp for some of his wives to cook and clean and farm, right? The, this is I the believe place so, on yeah. But the actual place is up East Canyon. For those of you interested, there's a monument there. And so I was clearing trees up there, so... During Pioneer Week.
2: Yeah. Lucky. So,
1: yeah. I'm so lucky to clear trees up there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been blessed. Um, yeah. Service activity. Yeah. And and since I'm on this uh, disjointed uh, connecting the dots, I remembered my train of thought from before. And I wanted to point out how interesting it is that atheism um, has its own following of not something. You know, you don't, you don't find um, people going around, around playing Pokemon Go and there's a whole group of people that are A- pokemon go right like right. but there are theists and for whatever reason there has to be a group of non-theists because otherwise they think it's just
2: it's just fascinating to me that to... well that that plays perfectly into the the otherizing that is used to scare people away from anti-mormon literature right um if you can create an otherized scenario if you are a theist the default you know <laughs> um the default other has to be atheist, right? When atheist is a neutral position. That is, I choose to not believe in any God until evidence is provided to me, um, scientifically verifiable evidence that is reproducible in a lab setting. But you God believe exists. that Quakers live on the moon. I, in a different time, a different life I would have. You would have. <laughs> but you don't now, so what do you call yourself? Uh, an A Quakerist on the Buddhist. Oh, jeez! Yeah. I didn't realize that. Same before with people I asked living on to- the sun. Yep. <laughs> no, uh, that's important just to point out, right? I'm I'm an A Santaist. I'm an A Tooth Fairyist.
1: If I had known these things, I might not have asked you to be a guest on our show. I just, yeah.
2: You, uh, I don't know. You, far- you control the recording. You can delete it after I walk <laughs> okay. out of the room, and I will totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> we will not delete that, Cody. Don't delete it. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, I, I wanted to, um, before we close, I, I really wanted to get into one of your favorite topics nowadays, it seems like, and that's the the Smith entheogen theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I'd even heard about it until I listened to it on your podcast, but for anybody like me, what what is that?
2: Yeah, so the Smith entheogen theory feels like a dramatically understudied aspect of Mormon history that incorporates the usage of various plant medicines within Joseph Smith's ministry uh, in order to elicit spiritual experiences for the Mormons uh, in different settings, dependent on whatever the setting was, how many people were there. Um, Various plant medicines could have been used and infused in um, various vehicles in order for Joseph to become the Mormon's shaman, their spirit guide. Um, That's the academic and articulate way to say that I believe that Joseph Smith was drugging the early Mormons and was using a, an entire toolbox of pharmacology that he was familiar with because of his magic and root, uh, his magic roots in early, you know, prior to the gold plates. He had a number of mentors that would have been able to provide him with the knowledge that he could use and manipulate plant medicines and infuse them into consecrated anointing oil that is the consecrated part of the anointing oil or in the lord's supper within the uh the bread that was administered um there's there's a couple of possibilities of uh plant medicines he could have infused into the bread or into the wine during the lord's supper um how I happened upon all of this was I was reading through accounts of the Kirland De- Temple dedication ceremony, and there are just dozens of contemporary firsthand accounts of people hearing the sound of a rushing mighty wind, people seeing angels. People seeing God walking through the congregation, having these incredible, incredible experiences. And when you view that through the context of uh, what was going on prior to the temple dedication, that's a school of the prophets that was initially held in the John Johnson home, then moved to the Whitney uh, store and then up to the third floor of the Kirtland temple. Um there there's some very weird occurrences that are happening the men washing and bathing each other and covering themselves in cinnamon whiskey and, and cinnamon in extremely high doses is actually psychoactive as well um and when it evaporates off of you when the whiskey cinnamon combination evaporates off of you you get this tingling really weird feeling and you kids don't get the, any ideas you'd feel the spirit coming over you I appreciate the disclaimer but <laughs> 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 um so, needless to say, there is a plethora, there, there is abundant evidence that visionary experiences were happening. And one way to explain those facts is by viewing them through the Smith entheogen lens that Joseph Smith was implying, uh, was applying the use of datura stromonium, uh, that's commonly called Jimson weed, that's everywhere in the New England area, um, possibly psilocybin cubensis. Uh, magic mushrooms, as they're called. Um, one of the most likely contenders is Amanita muscaria, um, that, that shares the uh, same psychoactive as the peyote does as well. And the peyote is mescaline. That's the, the psychoactive ingredient within those two plants. And um, it's worth noting that the very first mission troop, their, their very first activity was going in and participating in prayer circles with the Native Americans in Kala, Missouri, and that's where they were proselyting. There was a language barrier, so that that's not very, you know, they weren't able to proselyte very successfully, but one of the missionaries who accompanied them was one Dr. Frederick G. Williams, who was a Thompsonian botanical doctor, a root and herb doctor, and Thomsonian medicine is a fantastic rabbit hole in and of itself, and uh, this is all stuff that's that's going into book format that will one day be coming forward. Um Um, I, it, it takes a lot of work to write a, a legitimate history book in Mormon history. Um, anyway, so the, this, um, you know, Frederick G. Williams was part of the missionary troop out to oh Freddie G. Willie. Oh, Freddie G. Willie. That's him. That's who I call him on in naked Mormonism. Um, and he very likely would have used that opportunity to trade plant and herb knowledge with these native Americans. And at that point he likely would have been, if he wasn't familiar with it prior, he would have been become familiar with peyote at that time. And that definitely serves to be one of the places where Joseph Smith and the early Mormons in Kirtland era had some really wacky experiences, um, Sigils floating in the sky, magic white orbs that they go chasing, um, just really weird stuff that you can't explain without saying, well, it's either God and the devil that's acting on them, or maybe they're just high. (laughs) Maybe they blasted off and they went home too early and they, they saw a floating orb in the night. Maybe Martin Harris did see a city through a mountain through his spiritual or second sight, um, it's a lens. It's a framework by which to understand Mormon history.
1: Yeah. Spiritualized and second sight. We could do a whole podcast on those too. Oh, yes. I want. I can hear some of the listeners saying like, well, Bryce, he's, he's an atheist. He, he clearly hates Brigham Young. He has nothing but good things to say about bloody Brigham. Now he's off talking about hallucinogens in the Victorian era. Um, what would you say to somebody who who's just says, no, you know, I'm, I,
2: I don't, I, Hand-waving. none of that? Right. Yeah. The hand waving. Um feel free to ad hominem attack me. Don't let that be a a legitimate fallacy logical fallacy that tears down my argument. Deal with the facts, people. You read the accounts of the Kirtland Temple dedication ceremony and then you go look up on Erowid, where people, um, largely anonymously have um, you know, reported their, their their trip reports of these various chemicals. And look up the trip reports for Datura and for Amanita Muscaria and peyote, and then compare those side by side with uh, some of the accounts, the firsthand accounts of the Kirtland era church. And um, there's, it's a framework by which to understand early Mormon history and the abundance of evidence of these, would, it would be, I, I am at pains to explain them in a different way that exposes my bias as a researcher within the smith-entheogen theory and i have i i think it's important to be transparent about those biases but i think it's important to contend with the facts and my one of my very first things that i ever said on the podcast was doubt your beliefs before you doubt the facts contend with the facts that i'm arguing don't contend with me as an atheist my arguments and the facts that I'm using to create and formulate those arguments are what you need to take issue with. And I've had a lot of correspondence with a number of historians. So far, the pushback has not been present, really. Most people who I have spoken with at um, John Whitmer Historical Conference at Sunstone, I haven't attended MHA yet. I um, I may, I may not, I I don't know. Um, Most of the people who I've spoken to about this consider it quite plausible, but they they withhold belief in the Smith-Entheogen theory until they're shown the evidence. They're skeptics of Mormon history. That's the right way to be a Mormon historian. So it's hard to say, yes, Joseph Smith was drugging the early Mormons, but if we do allow for that as a possibility— it serves to have a lot of explanatory power for the Kirtland era of Mormonism. And when you say
1: skepticize everything, you're not saying skepticize everything except for the things I tell you. Yeah, no, skepti- skepticize, yeah
2: skepticize everything. Everything, yeah. everything I say, everything everybody says to you, every, everything you read on the internet, skepticize it.
1: And what do, you, what do you personally have to gain for, let's say you converted me to the smith anthony theory. What do you have to gain from that?
2: more downloads on my podcast. <laughs> that's really it. And and that's what it comes down to is this is... Well, let me, let me back up.
1: Well, I wanted to point that out because it's important to distinguish when you're talking about certain beliefs, if somebody's giving you information, you should ask yourself, what do they have to gain from me accepting yeah. this information? What's the intent and motive? And when somebody's benefiting 10% of your income, I don't want to point fingers, but that
2: is a red flag to be even more skeptical right not saying it's false i want people to be very skeptical of what i say and i want people to understand that i make my living podcasting about mormon history and there is a certain there is a certain utility in reporting the most salacious aspects of mormon history just like the ces letter did because it's it's quick, it's fun information that you learn quickly and it gets clicks, right? And it's and it's powerful. The arguments are made. There is a utility to that. And we need to understand that there is motive to gain downloads, to gain new Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash of Mormonism. There's always the need to market Mormon history. But I want to view this through a very realistic lens and and a holistic lens, I should say, because I want people to consider the realm of Mormon history and what it has been since Joseph Smith's time has largely been a, a narrative that is created by the people who have an intent on you only knowing a certain version of the history. Joseph Smith himself was rewriting his own history multiple times and writing out the pieces that people found challenging. He himself distanced his roots from the magic and occult practices. Since Joseph Smith died, Brigham Young and Willard Richards and you know the generation after that B.H. Roberts every prominent Mormon historian has done an incredible amount of work of chronicling Mormon history, but have done so as a believer in the church with a vested interest of continuing their employment within the church. Now consider the opposite side of that equation. Fawn Brody kicked off an amazing work with No Man Knows My History in the 1940s, in the late 40s. is a time, Hugh Nibley was just beginning his career in Mormon apologetics, and he would become one of the, the foremost Mormon historians throughout the you know 50s, 60s, all the way up and, until he died in early 2000, I think it was. The realm of Mormon history has been extremely combative because it has been so propagandized. And the church has expended millions of dollars on creating their narrative. They have employed legions of historians and poured just... Unconscionable resources into those people to create the narrative that they want that is not challenging. Now we have the internet. Now we have the golden bullet that is going to truly and fundamentally challenge the narrative of the church. And this realm of Mormon historians, of outsider Mormon historians with Von Brody and, and Juanita Brooks and and Dale Morgan and these these, you know, through into the 60s and 70s, and then in the Sunstone era through the 80s of the golden era of the Sunstone historians, it's been this counterculture, it's been this counter-narrative that has been starved from the beginning and has been maligned by the by the society, by the system, because these people are pointing out those inconvenient facts, those facts that are not very useful consider the disparity in resources. I'm a podcaster that is studying Mormon history and trying to create an entertaining and informative version of Mormon history that doesn't have the Mormon spin on it. There have been podcasters who have come before me who have created a faith-promoting version of Mormon history. There have been books long before me that, have been, that there have been historians employed by the church for more than a century before me who have created a version of Mormon history that is dishonest. It requires resources to expose that dishonesty. And we always have a hard time when we talk about money, when it comes to, oh, you're doing a podcast and you're talking about Joseph Smith drugging people, what do you have to gain from this? More Patreon dollars? Well, that is people supporting me monetarily in order for me to be able to spend a full-time job on researching and reporting Mormon history that is just one very tiny way to combat the propaganda that has been perpetuated that we all believe or have believed in our entire life and it is merely a mechanism by which I'm able to accomplish that because we all got to live I gotta eat We all got to, you know, all of us are going to do differently in life and make different decisions on money. Money is a mechanism, it is a, a tangible resource by which a thing is able to be accomplished. The thing that I am able to accomplish is creating accessible Mormon history. And the way I'm able to accomplish that is by listener support. Because unfortunately, it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, digging through resources to find the truth that lies at the, at the the kernels of truth that lie at the bottom of those resources.
1: Well, I know I'm not alone in appreciating all the work and time and energy you put into your podcast. And I'm going to go ahead and categorize all of our listeners into three categories and address them individually. One, the post Mormons or never Mormons who are just listening for fun. And we say, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And we glad to have you here. Um, The transitioning Mormons who grew up LDS or or transitioning out of any religion, really, um, who are in a scary place. I've been there. Bryce has been there. A lot of us has been there. And uh, it's scary. And we're glad you're taking that leap. And and, uh, we can be uh, resources for you if you need it. And hopefully you enjoyed the podcast. And then the Mormons, the active Mormons, the active Baptists, the active Jews, whatever religion you belong to that are starting to think critically and skepticize some things and maybe seeing what else is out there i know that can be pretty scary at times and we really appreciate you coming and taking a listen and hopefully you don't think that just because some of us believe joseph smith uh used hallucinogens to convert people or whatever the case may be um that you have to believe that too we're all just on this path together and hopefully we wind up on the other side uh safe and sound um so I want to really thank Bryce for coming on here. It's so such an honor to have him here. Um,
2: he mentioned a book. you've got a book you're writing i uh, well, when I was in the infancy of the podcast i uh I did a a fundraising campaign uh, a Kickstarter campaign because I was under the impression that, hey, you know, I'm churning out fifteen pages of script per week for the podcast. Um, if I convert that into book format, um you know that's that's two hundred pages in you know about three and a half, four months. Um, so we, you know i I can probably churn out a book in about six months, and I made the very bold claim that in six months I can get two history books out about Mormonism, and that was profoundly stupid of me because yeah, what was that? Uh, that was back in twenty fifteen, okay. That was just downright stupid of me, um, because the goal was met, but I didn't understand what goes into writing a historically verifiable book about Mormon history that won't get you laughed out of every single Mormon history conference. I have learned a lot since I did that. I have learned how much work is required to compiling the sources, because a history book is only as good as its footnotes. And sometimes the footnotes are more important than the book itself and if i cannot compile a book that is historically verifiable then that is going to set me and my career in mormon history on a very poor trajectory a very poor arc and it's something that i was not careful enough when i initially raised the money but when i raised the money for it that allowed me to go full-time into studying mormon history it allowed me to go to a weekly format instead of semi-weekly format. And it allows me to put a lot of time into this book about the Smith Entheogen theory. And it is progressing very slow and methodically. And I don't even want to throw an estimate of when it will be available because this is such an understudied side of Mormon history that I am things jump out at me every single week that I Need that forced me to rewrite so much of what I already have. Um, it has become such a massive and a surprisingly daunting task now that, um, needless to say, in order for this book to be bulletproof and not get completely thrown out of all the Mormon history conferences, it's going to take some time to work on. So. Well, good luck to you on that. Yeah.
1: Um, and then I get the honor and privilege of interviewing you face to face. Why is that? We're here for Sunstone. Woo, Sunstone yeah, 2018. twenty eighteen. It's the bomb. For those of you that don't know, Sunstone is a symposium, a massive symposium of anything and everyone, Mormonism. Um, and I, I feel obligated to clarify that it includes the Community of Christ. I know they don't like to be lumped in with Mormons.
2: Well, it includes Strangites. It includes a number of of you know break sects.
1: Yeah, and if I if I remember correctly from the the program, I think we've got an FLDS presenter this. Time around. They usually are, yeah.
2: That is pretty exciting. And then we've got Bryce and you're presenting. I'm presenting on another podcast I do called My Book of Mormon. We uh, my friend Marie and I, she's never Mormon. We read through the Doctrine of Covenants, and we are our um, the last episode we recorded was DNC 134. In case anybody doesn't know, DNC 135 is the announcement that Joseph and Hiram Smith Have been shot in Carthage. So what we are actually doing, and this is going to go out after, but uh, listeners, please check over on the My Book of Mormon podcast feed because uh, this Friday of Sunstone, we're doing a live benefit show for Pride, Utah. And we are doing The Demise of Joseph Smith at Squatter's Pub. Mm. That's at 147 Broadway. And that's going to be uh, a couple or an episode of the show. So you can find it. You can listen to it on My Book of Mormon podcast feed. But it's... uh, The shtick of the show is Marie doesn't know anything about Mormonism, and we have a strict no-spoilers rule. So she has learned Mormon history as we've read through the Doctrine and Covenants, and I have taught her as we've gone along. So it's created this really fun dynamic, and she knows that Joseph Smith dies in a jail, but she doesn't know anything about the context of it. Oh, she's about to get bomb dropped on her, huh? Yeah, yep. And we're going to have Colleen Dietz of Mormon Happy Hour as a guest panelist as well and we're just going to play a drinking game along and have a really good time um, and i assume when this airs people can uh, yeah like i said go to my book of mormon podcast and find Joe's demise
1: really do go to my book of mormon cuz uh, it's a fascinating podcast for a few reasons but one it starts with a guy named David Michael who has oh. a voice of silk gold i think oh i'd have to God, verify that so good so silky smooth it is smooth. eargasmic it's eargasmic i agree with you on that that is just a perfect way to put it Um, he had very little knowledge about Mormonism as well. And he went through and read the book of Mormon and he incorporated a drinking game where every time they say, and it came to pass drink,
2: um,
1: and a few other classic, uh, trademark lines in the book of Mormon. And it's fascinating to see somebody who doesn't have the stigma of this is true from the onset reading through it and, and taking note of some of the. Maybe sexist and
2: racist uh, undertones or well, overtones, just, and just the absurdity of it too. I, I mean, he's he. Uh, I'm I'm good friends with David because you know he brought me on for the DNC. Um, he just examines it through the lens of this is a 19th century American religious Bible fan fiction, and it's fun to hear him read it that way.
1: Very fun. And now it's migrated. David Michael moved on from the podcast and brought on. Marie Kent and Bryce. So now it's fun to see the DNC is played out by somebody who is very ill literate, not illiterate, but just very unversed in the subject of Mormonism mm-hmm. with somebody who's very versed in the subject. And they kind of compare notes and talk about it and walk us through the history of it and the DNC. So that's, that's great. Go check out that podcast as well.
2: Thank you. And then what, what day or time are you uh, presenting? That's going to be Saturday at ten fifteen. We're just presenting. uh, It's called DNC cover to cover, inside and outside, Um, because it's if you you know it's like an outsider and insider cover to cover reading the DNC. It's like it's like a palindromatic. We prefer never mind, whatever. Uh, We prefer on the other side, not uh, outsider inside. Oh yeah, see, you know that's just a matter of taste. It's okay. I'm not going to yuck your
1: yum. (laughs) But by the time this podcast airs. It'll be long gone, but yeah. you can go back and listen to it on Sun, Sunstone's podcast for free and just look up uh, Bryce's podcast.
2: Yeah, and we've given listeners so much to uh, comprehend and digest. We got my Book of Mormon podcast. We got Naked Mormonism. We got Sunstone. We got a, a lot of stuff here. Uh, if you want an understanding of my research and the way that I report Mormon history, You know, give episode 100, that's Masonry and Mormonism, a try. I invited Cheryl Bruno on, a fantastic uh, Mormon historian writing about Mormonism and Masonry. Went through a very skeptical take on it. Or if you want to hear my research specifically, listen to the Smith-Entheogen episodes. That's episodes 59 and 60, which we did right before Cody and I came and presented on it at Sunstone here last year. Woo! One year ago, we did those episodes. So
1: He's just growing up so fast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right. We're well, growing out more than up. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Bryce, for coming and spending time with us. This is fantastic. Thank you, Blake. It was, and, it was really a pleasure. Oh, my gosh. It's my pleasure, indeed.
2: Let's go in the garden. You'll find something waiting right there where you left it, lying upside
0: down. On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. The side is lighter when you turn
2: it around everything stays right where you left it everything stays but it still
0: changed The intro and outro theme for this podcast is Everything Stays a Rebecca Sugar cover by Blyant Valentine you can find more of Bly's music at B-L-Y-W-A-L-L-E-N-T-I-N-E ecom